Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, so today we're going to begin our long, slow crawl through Matthew. It'll certainly take the rest of this year, probably into next year as well. Um, actually, we went through Matthew in 2012, so if, you're, if you want to take some time off, you can just... Go back and listen. So I think I've, we'll see. I'm, I'm not looking back. So I, y'all can, you can compare if you want and you can decide which ones were, were better. Um, this is a, just a little bit on Matthew, just background as we begin. One, uh, Matthew is, it's called a synoptic gospel. You know, the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That word synop, synoptic means to see together. There's a lot of overlap in the material between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is about 90% unique. And then on the other hand, Mark is, Mark, Matthew contains 90% of, of Mark. Luke contains half of Mark. Matthew and Luke have about two thirds of their content in common. They're, they're seeing Jesus together and John is, is pretty different in terms of his perspective and the stuff that he um, is recording. So that, that's what it means to be synoptic. What's a gospel? Gospel means good news. It's the good news about Jesus. Is a gospel a biography? Yes and no. Um, an ancient biography, not a modern biography. It's historically accurate. So they're relaying truths, what Jesus actually said and what he actually did. If you have a hard time with believing that the gospels are historically reliable, you can reach out to me and I can point you uh, to some resources that may help you work through that question. But for our purposes in here, the gospels are historically accurate. They're relating what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually did. Uh, the gospels, they, they have a theological um, agenda, a theological perspective. They're, they're, they're not just telling Jesus's life story. They're wanting to communicate certain truths about who Jesus is and about his mission. So again, it's, it's not that they're not necessarily laid out in chronological order sometimes, but not necessarily. The material is organized in such a way as to communicate certain truths about Jesus. And each author tells you in the first couple of sentences what those truths are. We'll see that when we get into Matthew. And that's maybe what's different between a, a gospel and a modern biography. It is the, there's this theological content that they're trying to communicate and convince people of. They're not just telling the story of a great guy named Jesus. They're things that they want us to know about him and to believe about him. Matthew in particular, this is the conservative or the traditional view. That doesn't mean it's not scholarly. It just means it's old. Um, written by Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. We don't know tons about him. He was a tax collector. Uh, written sometime in the 60s, most likely. Uh, written to a Jewish Christian Congregation. Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. A couple of main things that jump out. Uh, it's kind of a discipleship manual. You see Jesus as teacher in Matthew. He takes Jesus' teachings and he combines them into these five major sermons that we'll see as we get into Matthew. And some people say he's trying to present Jesus as a second Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then we have Jesus giving these five major sermons, whether that stirs you or not, we definitely see Jesus as a teacher and there's that discipleship component. Here's what it means to follow him. 
There's also an apologetic component. It seems like Matthew's congregation still has a lot of contact with the Jewish community, whether that's family or friends. And Matthew is giving his congregation some, uh, some arguments and some evidence that they can then tell their family and friends, hey, Jesus really is the Messiah. Matthew has quotes the Old Testament more than the other gospels and shows how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies more than the other four gospels. That's something that would be meaningful to the Jewish community. So that's brief, brief overview of Matthew. You're gonna be thrilled you came this morning. We're gonna look at the genealogy of Jesus. So it's riveting stuff. That word genealogy actually means origins. That's a Genesis word. And keeping that in mind may help. Thinking about it a little bit less as a family tree, although it is that to a degree, and more as these are the origins of Jesus. Um, just let me read the first verse and then we'll talk about it a little bit. This is the genealogy or these are the origins of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew's telling you right off the bat, this is what I wanna communicate about Jesus. He's the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's not just in this genealogy, but that'll be through the whole book. That's the point he's trying to make. He's writing to a Jewish audience and he wants them to know Jesus is the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. In Greek, that word is Christ. So to say Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ is to say Jesus is the Messiah, same thing. We've talked about anointing the past couple of weeks when we've looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be anointed is to be, a set, to be set apart by the Father for a particular role and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that role. You can think of the Messiah as the, the chosen one and Matthew is saying that's, Jesus, he's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one. He's been set apart by the Father for a particular task, empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that task. Lots of different perspectives on who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. Two things that were in common, he would be a Jew. So that's the son of Abraham. Abraham is the first, was the, the first Jewish man um, and he's considered a true Israelite. So to say Jesus is a son of Abraham Matthew wants all of those Jewish Christians that he's writing to, hey, Jesus is, he's, he's a Jew. And also that he's the son of David. David's a king. And so there's this idea that the Messiah would be a king and a king like David, both of those parts, not just descended from David, but a king in the same way that David was a king. And David was a fighting king. He was a warrior king. By the time of Jesus, it had been about 600 years since Israel had been a free people. They, they, even after the exile, when they were restored to their land, they were under Persian rule and Greek rule and now Roman rule among some others. They had not been a free nation, a free people, and they were looking forward to the Messiah to come and to set them free, to reestablish them as an independent nation under God. So there's that warrior king thing. If you think back to David and particularly at the beginning of his kingship, how much fighting he did to establish the, the boundaries and the territory of Israel. And they're saying the Messiah is going to do the, the same thing. So that's what Matthew wants us to know through this genealogy, through this origin story. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. He's a true Israelite. He's a son of Abraham and he's a, a king like David was. He's a son of David. The genealogy is broken down into three segments, and each segment has 14 generations. Why 14? You, options. One would be just for symmetry's sake. 
So hardly anybody could read in Matthew's congregation. And even if you could read, you didn't have a copy of Matthew. Like you didn't, you didn't have that scroll. So on Sundays when you showed up in whatever, you're, you know, in somebody's house for church, Matthew's read, you gotta lock it in because you don't have a copy that you can take around with you. And things like symmetry help, help, help you memorize. It helps you grab on to what's being taught. So it could be just that simple. From Abraham to David, Matthew, and you also know Luke has a genealogy, they agree. And both of them agree with a genealogy in 1 Chronicles 2. And there's every reason to believe Matthew as well as he knew the Old Testament had that list. So they match there, Matthew and Luke. Outside of that, really, really different. Why doesn't Jesus have, doesn't he just have one family tree? Maybe Luke was tracing Jesus's biological line and Matthew seems to be tracing the royal line. Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Luke is writing to Gentiles, they don't care. And so Luke is showing that Jesus, he takes them all the way back to Adam actually. And so probably tracing two different lines there, but they agree from Abraham to David and that's 14 generations. So in the next two segments, Matthew, he picks and chooses he, he makes it 14. There are more than 14 generations in those segments, but Matthew chooses 14. You say, well, hey, can we trust him? The word father of, and that's Matthew's pattern, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. It actually means ancestor of. Father, grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever. So there's still, it's still accurate, even though Matthew removed names, which actually means, well, what about the names he left in? Is there something significant about those? And we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. So that's the general pattern. Uh, or oop, how about this? I, I forgot this and I, I'm not sure it's helpful, but for those of you that want something kind of sexy with the genealogy. So seven is just a number, except when it's not. Seven can stand for completeness or wholeness or perfection in Hebrew. You, you may know that. So 14 is two sevens. So three fourteens is six sevens, which makes Jesus the seventh seven, the beginning of, the, of this next group. So that makes him the, the perfect, perfect, or the complete, complete. Jesus doesn't have biological children, but he does start a new nation, the, the church. And so maybe that's where the 14 comes from, but you can take that or you can leave it. It's symmetry or that kind of more spiritual reason around numerology, but, or maybe both. We don't know exactly but Matthew intentionally went for those 14 generations. So I'm gonna read these names, so bear with me. And the reason I'm reading them is I want you to listen for the breaks in the pattern. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so. Listen for the times when that pattern is broken, and we'll see if we can find some significance in that. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. So Luke and David agree on that. Or excuse me, Luke and Matthew agree on that. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, 
Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of of Abahud, Abahud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elhud, Elhud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So you heard the differences, the the breaks, were brothers and mothers. So there's twice that Matthew says, so-and-so was a father of so-and-so and his brothers. Judah and his brothers, Jeconiah or Jeconiah and his brothers. Why? I think, again, I think there's a symmetry piece there. I think those guys are bookends to a very particular period in Israel's history. So Jacob had 12 sons, Judah was one of them. And those 12 sons, their descendants became tribes. And then those tribes, those 12 tribes with the coming of, or the enthronement of Saul become the nation of Israel. So naming Judah and his brothers, that's, you can see that as the beginning of Israel as a nation. And then Jeconiah was the last, we'll say, true king of Israel. By the time he is, uh, ascends to the throne, 10 of the tribes of Israel are gone. They were the northern tribes. They've been exiled. They never reconstitute. There's only two left. It's Judah is the name of the southern kingdom. Jeconiah is the king of Judah, and he's the last one. After him, any king is someone chosen by a foreign king to rule. So he's a, he's a puppet. So you've got Judah and his brothers. That's the beginning of this period of Israel as a nation. And Jeconiah and his brothers, that's the end. Those are the two bookends of Israel during the time when they are kind of a free nation. Again, even when Israel uh, is restored, when the Jewish people are restored um, after the exile, they're, it's ne- they're never the same again. They never have a king again. They're always under some kind of foreign rule. It's really different. And so I think that's the his brother's thing is Matthew's drawing these parentheses or brackets around this period of Israel's history the beginning and the end of them as really as I would say as a free or as an independent nation. The mothers, that's more interesting to me. So Mary, we can bracket off. I think we can all see why Mary is included. She's the only one who has physical connection to Jesus. Joseph didn't have anything to do with her, with, uh, with his conception, with the conception of Jesus. And so that kind of makes sense to us while Matthew would break with the father of, you know, father of so-and-so pattern to include Mary as a person who is physically uh, connected to Jesus at his conception and at his birth. But what about those other four women? Why are they mentioned? So that's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then Bathsheba, who Matthew says is the, the woman who was Uriah's wife. So that's, that's Bathsheba. Why are those four mentioned? Some options. Some would say to show that women are included. Judaism at the time was a very male-centric religion. 
women had very, very, had a very small place. And so this was a way of saying, hey, Jesus came for men and for women, which is 100% true. I would say if Matthew wanted to communicate that, he picked the wrong four. There were some other women that maybe would have communicated that more clearly. Matthew talks about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were all married. Their wives probably would have communicated more clearly this idea of men and women, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Some say, well, Matthew included them because to show that, that there's, there's sin in Jesus's past, kind of as a, he's, he's saints and sinners. He, he came for everybody. And again, that's 100% true. We would say we're all sinners, but the, these women, several of them in particular, Rahab's a prostitute, Bathsheba was an adulteress, and so maybe there's something about including them Maybe as a side note, there were questions around Jesus's legitimacy at the time. People said he was an illegitimate uh, child. And so maybe including those women helps somehow kind of uh, provide a bit of cover for that with Jesus. What I would say is if Matthew wants to communicate that there are kind of quote saints and sinners in Jesus's lineage, he didn't need the women to do that. David is the most prominent name in the genealogy, and he was a murderer and an adulterer. Manasseh is one of the two worst kings in the history of Israel, and his son, Ammon, is just as bad. So he doesn't need the women to show that there's sin in Jesus's family tree. We, we, we get that. Some would say, well, those women, all four of them are Gentiles. And so Jew, uh, Judaism at the time of Jesus was, uh, it was very uh, insular. The Gentiles were kept out at arm's length. They were unclean. It was a high bar of entry. And so maybe including these women is a way of saying, hey, Jesus came for Jews and for Gentiles. He's doing something new, which is 100% true. All of those things could be. So for me, when I hear the names of those four women, I don't necessarily think, oh, they're Gentiles. That's not the thing that I think of about them. I think of their stories. Matthew knew the Old Testament really well. Again, it's the most Jewish of the four gospels. His assumption, he's writing to Jewish Christians that they know the Old Testament really well. When they hear the names of these women, they're thinking of their stories. And I think there's something to that. So you don't have to go with me on any of this, but maybe something to consider. Why these four women, they, each of them gets a little section in the Old Testament, and as we walk through them, you'll see the scripture references there. You can go back and read their story in greater detail. I'm gonna give a super, super high-level summary. When I think of this idea of origins versus genealogy, word, it's the same word. When, when, when I hear genealogy, I'm just thinking family tree, descent, descent, descent. Origins to me speaks a little bit, it's a, it's a bigger word. And when I think about the origins of Jesus and these four women, there's things I see in their stories that to me give insight into who Jesus is and what he's doing. Jesus and the Father have the same character, you know that. So when we're seeing the, the character of the Father in the Old Testament in these stories, we're seeing the character of Jesus. It's all kind of part of that foundation of who he is and what he does. And again, you don't have to go with me on any of this, but 
this, if, if this is what I'm thinking, Matthew's including these names under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knowing that his congregation is gonna think of these stories. Tamar, there's no way of telling this in a PG version, so I'm gonna give like way up here. You can read Genesis 38 if you want the gory details. Judah is, Mar- Ju- Judah's, Judah is, is Tamar's father-in-law. Tamar's married to his oldest son. He's wicked, God kills him. The second son has a responsibility according to custom of the day to have a child with Tamar that would be credited to his older brother. He fails in his responsibility through willful neglect, sin. He's killed. And then Judah has one son left and he promises to Tamar and says, when, when he gets old enough, he'll be your husband, but he's not gonna do that. She's, it's like, in his mind, like, Maybe she's a black widow, like, oh, for two, I'm not gonna give you my other son. And then Tamar realizes that at some point and for righteous reasons, and again, you can kind of think through this, she contrives or plans or schemes or whatever you wanna say to get Judah to sleep with her, her father-in-law. And she gets pregnant. And uh, those twins become Judah's grandchildren. God had already decided that it was gonna be through Judah that the Messiah came, that Judah's older brothers had disqualified themselves from that because of their behavior. Judah did not have grandchildren until Tamar kind of worked that angle to have children with Judah. And again, you can read the story in Genesis 38. Don't read it to your children. You can read that story today. And this is what I would say. When I... When I think of that, what I think about is God's will finds a way. That's what I think about. Judah was being, whether it's fear or sin or those things, how those things overlap, he's not honoring his responsibilities to Tamar and it's beyond just her. If there's no generation beyond her, well, that's, that, well, that's, that's who the Messiah is coming through. It's that, it's that line. And God's able to work in ways that I don't understand, even through the sinful choices of people to accomplish his purposes. And that, honestly, it makes me think about the cross and the the sinful choices that people make and God's still able to use those to accomplish something beautiful, the thing that he wants to do. That's in the mix when I'm thinking about Jesus's origins. Rahab, she's a prostitute. She lives in Jericho and she takes this huge risk when Joshua sends spies to Jericho, she houses them and hides them from her, the, the, the king of that city. That's treason. That's, I would imagine, that's a capital offense in Jericho. It's this huge step of faith. And when you read about her in Joshua 2, she says to these two spies, like, we know your God is better than ours. We know that. You're gonna win. And remember me when you do. Twice in the New Testament, She's commended for her faith in Hebrews and in James. In James, she's actually called righteous because of what she does. And we know, we looked at Galatians this fall, righteousness is tied to faith. We see that in Rahab and that reminds us of God rewards those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus. That's the key dynamic in our relationship with the Father is faith or or trust. It's in the mix of the origins there. Ruth, it's a great story. She's a Moabites, so she's a Gentile. Her mother-in-law is Naomi. They're living in Ruth's town, 
with Naomi's husband and both of Naomi's sons die. So it's just Naomi and her two daughters-in-law and she's desolate and devastated. And she says to these two daughters-in-law, hey, y'all, I'm going back to Israel. I'm, y'all just need to stay here. I don't have anything for you. And the, one of the daughters-in-law says, okay, I'm gonna stay. And Ruth says, no. And that passage on the screen behind me that's quoted at every wedding, that's, a, that's something a daughter-in-law is saying to her mother-in-law, not a husband to a wife. That, think about that. She is committing to Naomi when Naomi has nothing to offer her. And Naomi says, are you really gonna wait around? If I had a son today, would you really wait until he got old enough? for me to give him to you in marriage? Would you, like at that point, you're too old to have children. Are you really gonna do that? Ruth takes this massive risk in the name of love. Love says, I want what's best for you, even if it costs me. Ruth is a quintessential picture of agape love in the Old Testament. The love of God in the Old Testament we see in Ruth. And then God, God works through a, a, it's called a kinsman redeemer. It's a particular role in a family, a guy named Boaz, and he, honors his responsibilities and his desires towards Ruth and Ruth and Naomi is the one who benefits. She's redeemed and she's restored at the end of the story. It's this incredible picture of love. And again, you, you see that, you read Ruth and you can't help but see the gospel in that. God demonstrated his own love in this for us while we were still sinners. He died for us. This huge risk, this huge sacrifice that God makes in order to make relationship with him possible. Bathsheba, and Matthew wants us to remember the story. He doesn't use her name Bathsheba. He reminds us this was the woman married to Uriah until David had Uriah killed. As a re- God's judgment on David and Bathsheba's adultery is the death of their child. There's repentance and restoration And their second child is Solomon, who behind David, you could make a good case, is the second greatest king in the history of Israel. And you see on the screen behind me the the tenderness that God expresses towards this son. The restoration and the redemption of Bathsheba and David and then through and and their son Solomon. Again, that's, that's what Jesus does for us. He fully forgives and he fully restores. When I think about those four women, why those four women? I think it, it reminds us of those stories. And when you go back and read those stories, I would encourage you to do that this week. You're looking, look for the hand of God in the midst of those stories. Look for the things that you know to be true of Jesus and his ministry all the way back in those, you can kind of see foreshadowings or, or echoes, if we can say it was an echo beforehand of Jesus's character and his mission in the, in the stories of those four women. Again, that's, that's all in the mix, this, these origins of who Jesus is, what he's, what he's coming from. We see that God's will finds a way. We see that God honors those who are trusting in him. We see the great love that God has for his own people and what that love looks like. It's love that does what's best for us, even at great cost to him. And we see the full forgiveness and restoration that are available to us. So we'll see all of those things as we look at Jesus's life and ministry. Those themes we'll see running through Matthew and you'll forget all of those and I'll forget all of them because it's gonna take us so long to walk through the book. But for us, as we begin, 
This is what I want you to do just in response to a genealogy. I want you thinking of those four things. Is there one of those that right now you're like, you know what? I might know that, but that's not a foundational reality for me. I, I'm, in a, I'm in a tight spot. I don't see how God's gonna work this out. And can we pray for you that God's will would find a way in your life? I'm having a hard time trusting God with this relationship or in this circumstance. Would you let us pray for you that today you would trust him at a deeper level and that he would honor that faith and that trust in you? Maybe this Ephesians 3 thing that we're gonna be focused on in February for that scripture memorization, that may be exactly where you are. I know that God loves me intellectually. It's not the foundational reality of my life. We would love to pray that God would reveal his love to you in a way that you would understand at a greater and a deeper level. Maybe you, maybe you, you know you've been forgiven, but you live with a sense of shame. And we would love to pray that you would know the fullness of that forgiveness and restoration and that your past is not the ultimate determiner of your future. So Bo's gonna come back and lead us in some ministry. We'll have teams up here. We'll pray with you with anything about anything at all that you have going on. But if one of those four things, if, if, if one of those four hits you today, we would love, just as we begin looking at the Gospel of Matthew, that over the course of this week and this month and this year, that the Holy Spirit would be sowing that truth in your heart in a deeper way. So you guys can stand. I'm gonna pray. Y'all respond as you feel led to do so and Bo will dismiss us in a few minutes. Holy Spirit, I pray quite simply that you would apply the truth, the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do in the hearts of every kid and student and adult in this room. I pray that we would yield to you in these moments to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 